people, let me invite you now to stand for the gospel lesson this morning. It comes to us from the good news according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. I'll ask you to listen carefully because this is the sermon text and uh, we won't read it again. And also just because it's the good news. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the gospel of our Lord. A very long time ago, in a land distant from here, lived a princess named Mahala. She was good and pure, curious and lovely, though not much more than a toddler when our story finds her, playing in her father's lap, savoring the scent of his leather vest, marveling at the jewels of his royal sash, and weaving tiny knots in the big white beard that covered his gentle, weathered, onyx cheeks. The king loved her so, more than anything, because she was his most beloved treasure, the person that mattered most to him in the world ever since his wife, the queen, had died, giving birth to Mahala. And oh, how they loved one another, this father and daughter. The king showed the princess all the natural and cultural glories of their idyllic realm, and as she grew, he gave her everything that she needed. He taught her everything that was necessary to know to eventually take his place as a ruler of the kingdom of Nahina. And to his subjects, the king was good and mighty. He had brought peace and prosperity to their land. He had not only won impossible victories and exploits, he was not only wise and a maker of the world's most glorious library full of the world's intellectual treasures, not only a known lover of all sorts of beauty and majesty, but 
it was rumored, was also in the special lineage of the knowers, those who knew the ancient deep magic. It was said he not only brought the sun and the harvest, but also commanded all manner of weather, fearsome thunderstorms and lightning and the like, and that he could influence many of other of our life's vicissitudes. One day as Mahala was playing with her nurse on the shores of the great river, they found a curious wicker basket in the reeds, and when they went to inspect, they found within it a small, pale-colored infant. On his stained onesie, there were strange characters embroidered on the bib, and they brought the child into the royal castle. After inspection by all the scribes, it was discovered that the characters on the bib were one word in the dialect of an ancient ally far from Nahina, and it was a name, Robert. They would take Robert in and take care of all of his needs and train him up, bring him up even as one of their own, and Mahala and Robert especially would grow close. At first, she was like a not-so-efficient nurse taking care of him, not too many years older than him herself. But then he became a younger brother-like companion. They would often, as they grew, sneak off to their special secret place, a sycamore tree, just a little bit away from the castle, but out of view. And then as they grew older, as is wont to happen in life, they began to de develop a bit of a crush on one another, to use modern parlance. Began to look at each other a little differently. And as this continued, she and her father continued to provide everything that he needed. Everything that was necessary for life and for flourishing. And she especially would sneak him extra bits of food on the side or an invitation to special gatherings because deep down she was suspecting that she might love him. They put him in royal clothes. They denied him no food or other comforts. They taught him all the intellectual treasures of the world, their cultural skills and so forth. They trained him up to be a brave soldier. But his favorite thing was to sneak off and play flirtatiously more and more as time went on with Mahala. He began to set his ambition not only on being worthy of her, but in order to do so, making the king's guard, where he dreamed sometimes at night, of becoming the commander someday of the king's guard. At one point during this season, the king himself had to decide who would take over and who would make it into the guard. They were young adults now, and on the big day, there was one spot left in the guard, and the king chose Robert's rival for the final spot. He assigned Robert to studies in the library and to the sort of junior teenage training program for soldiers, which didn't even use real swords. And slowly over the year, Robert began to nurse musings in his head of why this king, who Technically wasn't his father, I suppose, wasn't even really family. Why had he said no to him? Why had he left something out of his reach for a future day? Why had he passed him over? 
Perhaps he thought of him still as a second-class outsider, someone who could never truly belong or have the right to rule. That same year, a man named Calum, about the same age as Robert, arrived as a political refugee from his supposed homeland, and he sidled right up to Robert and wouldn't leave his side as they trained together in the junior teenage training program for soldiers with the fake swords. He would take them out to the pub. He taught them about the pub. They would go to the pub and hang out and talk. And slowly, it took a while, he earned his trust, but he started to whisper things in Robert's ears. Mahala, you seem to look at her a lot. Yeah, she's pretty in all her pink and her foppery, but she's a bit of a Nepo baby, no? A little out of touch, maybe? Oppressive at a turn, moody, moody, rich? And don't you know the story about this king, an ancient conqueror of our once proud people, the Dorn? And slowly, as Robert listened, Caleb began to tell him more and more of the truth, which was there was a brewing militia in their homeland of Dorn. They were rebuilding their ancient kingdom. They had aspirations of adventure and conquest. And then one day he told Robert the truth that you, in fact, are Robert, the Palmer. You are one of the legendary former warrior ruler class of the kingdom of Dorne that has fallen into disrepute and ruin. We want you to come home and lead us as we take over all that was once ours. And Robert's heart grew ambitious and desirous. Slowly he stopped showing up at the sycamore tree to meet Mahala as often. He often would choose the pub with Calum instead. And more and more, Calum would fill him with new information, the information they're not telling you. Then finally, one night, under the cover of darkness, they hatched a plan. One week later, on a bright morning, a message was conveyed to the king and to Princess Mahala at breakfast that Robert and Calum had run away together, headed in the direction of Dorne. They had found some drinking buddies that had snitched on their friends' late-night tall tales, their talk of seeking new and former glory far from the watch of this dark, cloud-wielding, treacherous king. And then, friends, listeners, at the bottom of your page, as you're reading, it says, what will Mahala do next? Choose. Oh, I'm sorry, for those of you under 40. And then, the animated NPC on your character has a bubble pop up above his head, and it says, what will Mahala do next? Choice A. Send out an elite battalion to catch the traitors and show them no mercy. Choice B. Mahala talks the king into strengthening the walls and their batteries and all of their defenses, increasing the soldiers against an assumed impending uprising because no way will those dirty, evil rebels ever come in here and take it over. Or choice C. 
let them go. And trust that the love and culture you've shown Robert will persist somewhere deep in his heart in his decisions down the road. Even though you're a New Yorker, you're not totally cynical yet, at least when people are watching. And so the romantic in you chooses C. You turn to page 42. Or you continue down the animated path. Robert had left with Calum. They had made the long, treacherous journey to Dorne and... Robert had encountered there a ragtag, harsh, and desolate land where a nomadic group of rebels was plotting infiltration and to return Dorne to its former glory, but back at the palace, Mahala. You know, thinking about it, she had never trusted that newcomer. She'd kind of picked up on his worm-tongued whisperings coinciding with Robert's different countenance. She saw him making designs and whispering in his ears, And now she was told that they were building a revolutionary militia. But she knows her father is kind-hearted and loving. She knows how it could appear that he could be distant and a thunderstorm is scary, so she understands he could feel ominous and fearsome and maybe arbitrary. But she knows who he is. And she believes that deep down Robert knows who she is, if nothing else, for the love she has shown him. And so, because of her deep love of Robert and her belief in his goodness, her deep desire to see him restored and brought home safe and sound back to his rightful status and his opportunity for growth in the kingdom, she leaves and pursues him. The king agrees and sends a small entourage to find him, along with the king's chief guard to protect her. They begin their long and perilous journey They're walking through dark woods and then over mountains and then through bogs, through thorns and thistles. They're lost and retraced and find their way again. In the midst of all of this, they lose their clothes. They lose their royal garments with the insignia, which at that time would have been their identity to tell them who they are. They run out of food. They deal with mice and lice. They are attacked. There is fighting in between the soldiers and the entourage. And finally, they approach near to the land of Dorne. And they see a tall, seemingly impenetrable forest. And as they approach this forest, a very mysterious and spooky black cloud of fog envelops them. In this darkness. They run to and fro, calling out to one another, but the sounds seem to come from different directions, and so they are lost from one another. And finally, when Mahala comes through the fog, she is all alone. And she sees a very strange and spooky greenish green light in the dark of the woods that has an ominous presence that gives her a chill and a terror she's never felt before. What should Mahala do next? You look at the bottom of your page or the choices on your screen, and Choice says, turn around and go home immediately to safety and comfort. Actually, you've played this game before and you've done that. And it was kind of sad. She went home and she was good and she did well, but she ended her life single with sad eyes 
constantly looking out the window for Robert. I don't want to do that again. You've already looked at B, which is hide in a thicket and hope for backup to arrive. That one was particularly sad. When you turned to page 124 and saw what happened there, it was pretty boring. She died of malnutrition. You immediately flipped back and said, I'm not doing that one. How about C? Mahala walks terrified but defiant straight toward the greenish light. So you choose that. And there in the green light, she meets Mamuk, a dark and terrible and mysterious otherworldly figure who tells her she has to pass three tests or he will never release her. If she passes these three tests, she'll get three wishes. If she doesn't, she'll be his forever. And so the first test comes. He offers her simply to eat. The test to meet your needs. I can meet your needs, Mamuk says to Mahala. Look how satisfying, nourishing this would be. You'd find your strength. Your stomach wouldn't hurt anymore. She looks at the porridge and the bread and the wine and she says to him, my stomach will remain starving no matter how much as long as I am consumed with finding my love. Only that can satiate me. So on to the second test. He offers her all the acceptance and praise of his people. He offers her to belong, not to wait any longer, but to belong to a people that will satisfy her every whim and put fans upon her and feed her figs and do her bidding. She says to him, my praise and acceptance comes not from all the kingdoms of this world if I do not have the love of my one true-hearted friend, Robert. No praise will be satisfactory to me other than that. And so the third test, he says to her, well, I will make you the fiercest and most beautiful and most lovely and most powerful ruler, not just the queen, queen of your country, but the queen of the whole earth. I will give you all rule, power, control over every circumstance and all the influence. And she says to him, and yet still there is death. Can you give me the power over death? I could rule all and have everything, but one day it would all come to an end. And my father has whispered to me some of the deep magic and it says that the only power over death is if is a lover to die still in love, in mutual love with the beloved. And if they die in love, the beloved and the beloved, then there is the hope of waking together afresh to life ever after, where death can do no harm and there is no end. Be gone, Mamuk. She passed the third test. She's granted three wishes, and her three wishes are to see Robert in the flesh, to have just one minute to convince him to come home, and then to safely bring him home to her people. <laughs>
And this, my friends, is where you have your third and final choice in this story. What should Robert do? Ending A, Robert chooses no. We'll summarize, but in the end, his story finishes with him too messed up, too brutalized, too focused on his failure and nursing his grudges. And she leaves and goes home alone to live out her day staring out the window while he shrivels in his anger and frustration and solitude in the forest. Or ending B, he says, thank you so much, Mahala. I know that you're good. I know that you love me and I love you, but no, 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 no. I must choose my people, not your people. It is important that I stay and be with them because there is no bond thicker than blood and land. And she returns home hurt, with a wound that will never go away, but she's been changed. She's been transformed. She no longer needs a man. She comes home stronger and more independent. War ending C. He pushes through his fears and his shame and his remaining questions about the king, but he remembers all that she has done for him in love. He remembers her spoon-feeding him, teaching her how to play games, all of their talk under the sycamore tree, and he follows her home. There, eventually, she becomes a queen like no ruler before her of that beautiful land. She brings great prosperity to her people. They marry and rule together, and when she dies, he goes on to live a life of wisdom and fealty to his people bringing prosperity until one day, full of longing but also gratitude, he drifts into a deep sleep, into death, in the certain hope that when he wakes again, he will see her glowing, where they will live happily ever after forever. The end. Thanks for listening. That's my retelling, in fact, of this text we heard this morning. You know, mixed up, mashed up, updated for modern people. If I was brave enough, I would leave you with just that and say that thus ends the sermon, amen, which is what Pastor Brian is wishing I would do at this moment, I have no doubt. But because sermons are meant to be more than just, although they can't be less than, they don't need to be less than, they need to be more than just performance and story. It is meant to be the proclamation of the gospel, and this is not an allegory I told, but allow me just a moment See, this isn't exactly an allegory, but it is a universal story. It might sound like a fairy tale because all of the great stories in the world have some of the same things in common, that there's a hero, and the hero leaves his community to go on a quest. The hero faces trials and tribulations until he or she achieves a victory on this quest, and then they return home changed, but bringing gifts and wisdom. You can find these through all the great stories of the world, and you can find it in ours this morning. See, the problem with Lent 
and just reading Luke chapter 4 or the companion text in Matthew chapter 4 and seeing Jesus' temptations, you immediately read it as an individualist. If you're familiar with it, you think, yes, that's true. I am so much of a glutton. I always choose bread over God if I can. And, uh, oh, I seek my praise and acceptance and my meaning of belonging from all sorts of things in the world rather than from God. And, oh, I need to let him be my king and quit trying to control my whole life. And, of course, all of these things are true, but you start there and you end there and you Tell yourself, I will buck up and do a better job this Lent. I will make progress. You know, because God, he seems distant, and it's true. Sometimes I think he has it out for me. Maybe I'm out here, and he dwells somewhere, and he sent people out to get me and to say tough things to me and to challenge me and to hurt me and to harm me. Or maybe you think, like, option B in our first choice He's just got this giant fortress. And the worst thing that could happen in the world is that you would knock on the door and ask to come in because you would ruin the shalom that they have there. Instead, the story of the scripture from beginning to end is that God himself went out on a quest seeking to save those who had ran away. Seeking like Mahala in his love of you and me to find no matter the obstacle and to destroy every temptation, every test, everyone that you've given into that has been your overlord, your whisperer, all the tests you have failed, he has gone to beat them all for you. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And yes, it sounds like a fairy tale, but a fairy tale with flesh, not just a Disney animation, but one in which Jesus took on our very bones and skin and humanity. Whatever it means for him to have a mind and a will and affections like us, he became totally human and he came to battle for his beloved. This is the gospel. The good news is that someone has done for you what you can't do for yourself. That he came to battle all odds to love you, to win you back, and to bring you home, that he might reign over the new heavens and the new earth with you. And so what if this Lent, and yes, if you're investigating Christianity, you allow this story, this mythic version of it I've just given to you. And the story as it comes true to us in the gospel, and you allow it to allowed it to let you reshape the way you think about God and your own spiritual journey in this world? What if you faced your own failures, your shame, your sin, and yes, temptations, as the mortal enemy they are, deadly serious, and yet something more like wrestling with the bully on the playground? When you know that your dad and all the teachers and the administration and everyone else is about to run out and help you? That it's not going to be a fatal loss, even if you cry uncle for a moment. That the same Holy Spirit that it says sent Jesus into the wilderness to do battle with Satan for his beloved is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you. That he went out with the name beloved over him in his baptism. Go back and read Luke 3 right before here. Matthew chapter 3. He is baptized, identified with God, sent out as the mission of God's anointed, his emissary, with the word beloved ringing over the ears of all that could hear. And he goes out to do battle for you and me, to win us back to God. And if he has done that for you, what do you have to fear? 
Temptations and testings, and yes, failures even, become speed bumps sometimes rather than walls that you can't get through. You see a temptation and you don't think, oh, I just have to, I have to not give in to that. You think, wow, he must really love me. Instead of seeking my satisfaction and my nourishment in food or any other thing that I can provide for myself in the world, maybe I can consume Jesus as my daily bread. Instead of seeking the praise and affection of others or some in-group to belong to that's elite and special, to let Jesus' opinion of you be your praise, to let Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be your society of belonging, And rather than always trying to control your life and rule over your little kingdom that you've built, to let his rule, one that you know is wise and deep and ancient and fresh and full of love and flourishing, rule over you, even in the moments where you're carrying a cross. Can that be your Lent? Can that be your Christianity? See, when you know deep down in your bones somewhere and I believe this theologically, biblically, and every other sort of way, that every human being deep down has the seed of this knowledge in them. That's why it shows up in all the world's myths, this hero's journey, that deep down we are implanted with the seed of our former knowledge of God as a father who loved us and his son as our bridegroom. And when you know you're loved, you can face anything. When you're not sure that you're loved, you will fall into any one of these three traps over and over again. Looking for love to earn it, to secure it, to consume it, to control it. But from a place of fullness, you can allow yourself to be reduced to nothing, even momentarily, because you know he will raise you up again to new life. Jesus himself showed this when he battled for you, my friends. He said, take this cup from me. But not as I will, let your will be done. And then God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. The battle of the beloved is for you, his beloved. I mentioned Disney. They get a bad rap. But fairy stories are often true stories in a way that our whisperings or our twitters or our shouts aren't. We are the beloved. He fought the battle for us. All you have to do is dwell in his love and remember it. And then these three battles will be minor skirmishes instead of endless, lifelong, life-and-death world wars for you. They will become opportunities to face temptations and choose home again instead. To choose riches and joy and comfort and protection of your Father no matter the circumstances. To choose being beloved. To choose the beloved who battled for you. Which Indian will you choose today? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank <laughs> you.